0: in the corner. Okay, Erev Tov, everyone. Okay, today we begin Sefer Shmos. And when you talk about Sefer Shmos, obviously you're talking about the story of the Jews in Mitzrayim. So I want to share with you a piece from one of the pieces from the Lava Lavacharebi. And he says some brilliant ideas to share. They have very contemporary applications and uh, things you can put into practice starting tomorrow morning. So it's not just theory, it's uh, two practical ends, and if we have time there's a couple nice stories uh, to end off with this. So I'm just going to have to go to the left, to the center, uh, i try trying to get all the technology to record the class here, have the notes for you to see, and therefore save on paper for the, uh, for the uh, environment, right? <laughs> okay so let's take a look at we're talking about the story of Moshe and the decree what Paro did to the Jewish people and we know one of the decrees was that the boys are going to get thrown into the Nile River we all are aware of that decree and we'll talk more about that specifically but let's just start with exactly where was Yocheved placed Moshe in a basket and put him exactly where, and you know why I'm belaboring the way I ask the question. By, by just the tell weeks. me the way you know the story. Don't In the just ask it by the reeds. It's by the reeds. In the palace of the pharaoh. Whoa, whoa, we got too many different answers. Yeah. The okay, there's the Nile yeah, River. Niles, there's the Nile River. Yeah. Okay, so palace. where is the baby placed? In, the Nile. Were in denial, him. not in the Nile. Either you're in the Nile or not in the Nile. Not in, denial. in the Nile. In the Nile. Okay, <laughs> in the Nile. Denial. Okay. In <laughs> denial. Does everybody agree to that? Yeah, because that's why Vasquez had reached out to get it. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a look at the verse source. And his mother could not hide him any longer. And his mother could not hide him any longer and she took from a a reed basket she smears it with clay and pitch she puts the child in there and put him at the marsh at the Nile's edge okay what does that mean exactly at the Nile's edge the way Targum explains it over here and the people can skip all the time, main point where it's right there. the al Kaif Nahara. al Kaif Nahara means at the edge, meaning near the Nile, but not exactly in the Nile River. Is it the edge that you're still in? No, uh, it's Bayabasha, on the dry land right next to it. On the shore. Just, oh, what? On the shore. On the shore. Very good word. On the shore. So it seems he was not placed in the Nile River, okay? And there'd be a good reason to understand why would she not want to put him in the Nile River? He'd get killed! Okay, you ever see the Nile River? Yeah, I've been there. Okay, yeah? Well, how big is it? How wide is it? It's pretty wide. Is it like uh, it's not like the Jordan it's not like River? Not a stream; it's big, like right. across. It's, it's big, yeah. and it's choppy water at times. Yes, yeah, so you're going to put a little baby in a little basket. What's going to happen to him? Exactly. We'll get to Africa. Yeah, Ooh, whatever. Or... Anyway, but if we continue that. looking at the story, so let's see what the vas. So that's why it says al spas at the Nile's edge, meaning you know you're not you're not there, right at the shore. But then, when the daughter of Paro takes a look, she wants to wash there. Okay, and she sees the basket where hasuf inside there. Okay, so not al but pasuf—that means inside the river, inside the river. And if you notice the name she gave him Moshe she calls him Moshe why we took him out of the water we did not take him out of the seashore so there seems to be a bit of a contradiction here where was he was he at the seashore river's edge or in the river so how do we understand this so we'll take a look at the Raga Chava in his Sefer Safnas Paneach and he explains the following. He says, you know, the Nile River was something that the non-Jews worshipped. They worshipped the Nile River. So are we allowed to benefit from idols? We're not allowed to benefit from idols. How about if we would be doing that in order to save someone's life, can you do that? Yes. Well, yes, and I'm going to you get, spare get you all the details. But uh, really, you can't do that either, yeah, because if you look the at the Medrash get Tanhuma, tells us about that just the one line there. Power Egyptians worshipped the Nile, so that was clearly their idol. And Rashi tells us why was the first plague blood. ...to attack their God first. The first thing you do when you go on the offensive... ...you go and attack their God. And the Rambam tells us... ...just like it is if they want to force you... ...to transgress your religion... ...so it is with sickness. If a healing of a sickness... ...will involve transgressing... ...one of the three cardinal sins... ...you have to die... ...and not get any of that healing. And therefore... ...if a person's sick... And your life's in danger. And they said, well, the only way you can save your life is by transgressing one of the three sins. Too bad. You got to die. Really? And even yeah. if it's Sakonis Navashas, the Rambam says, still you cannot make use of it. Okay? So what do you see from all this? That you cannot benefit from Avodah zara even to save your life. That's the way the Rambam Paskins. So what was the purpose of putting Moshe into the Nile? To save, to save, to save his life. Mm-hmm. Can't put him in the Nile. Mm-hmm. But you can put him on the seashore. Mm-hmm. Put him on the seashore. But... How does he get in the Nile? Oh, how does he get into the Nile? Well, well that's where the daughter of Paro comes into the story. Okay, what does the Gemara and Sota tell us in source number nine? It says, And the daughter of power came down to bathe in the river. Rabbi Yochanan says, this teacher, she came down the river to cleanse herself from the impurity of her father's idols. And she was a merciful as part of the conversion process. Wow. Okay. Really? And therefore, so she wants to purge herself from the spiritual sins. And when she went there she also as the rugged chover explains she also let's go back to his source over there and he says rak Kivan the bas parahocha Lirchos, she went to use it as a cleansing agent we know there's a rule with idols that if, if a non-Jew nullifies the idol it's like it's not it's undone it's like, so like minus speak. and minus so if you have you have the Daughter of the king goes in and says, I reject everything about, and I'm using this idol to be a mikvah to cleanse me. You've nullified the idol because she was converting there. And then at that point, the basket can kind of get washed into the middle of the river and there's no problem at all. Okay, I never heard that mm-hmm. ever. so that is what's going on over. So that that's on a technical level, what's happening over here, okay? So now we at least understand this. Now the whole question we have to ask though is, well, why did Yocheved uh, put uh, or Miriam put the baby near the water like that? What was the reason for that? So the Medrash tells us. So why did we put him near the river? Because remember, the astrologer said that the leader of the Jewish people is going to get killed by water. Which they were right, because Moshe ultimately sinned by hitting the rock to get the water out. So they that so therefore, what, what did the idol? What did the um, astrologer see in the stars? Oh, we see he's, he's gone into the water. So since he's gone into the water, I guess he's killed. And therefore, what did they do? They stopped the decree. Okay, they stopped the decree. So now, let's analyze where we're up to right now. And now we start with the first question of the night. There was a decree to throw all the babies in the river. Okay, what stopped that decree ultimately? Moshe Rabbeinu going into the river. Although the sister didn't want him to go into the river because A, his life would be in danger. B, can't make use of idols. But since Yocheved went in, not Yocheved, the daughter of Paro went in, so she sort of nullified that idol. And therefore, and ex- exactly the, the the stargazers said, oh, the Redeemer is dead. We could stop the decree. So what do we see? Two things are happening at the same time. The idol of the Nile was denied by somebody who was a very big Egyptian. Okay, it's nullifying that idol worship. And the decree of every boy to be thrown in was also stopped. And why? Because Moshe is the Savior. So is it just a coincidence that those two things are happening at the same time? I mean, we could say, it's just technically this is what happened. The stargazers saw that the Redeemer is going to be born very soon and he is going to die by the water. So they make the decree to throw the boys into the water. And then what happens when Moshe goes near the water, so comes the daughter of Paro and nullifies the Vodah Zora And that happens. At the same time, Moshe now goes into the water and now the astrologers, they take away the decree And so we have to see, is that just a coincidence or is there a deeper message that the idol worship gets nullified and the decree of the boys being thrown in is also nullified at the same thing and the common denominator is Moshe. Is that just an interesting fact of Pshat or is there something much deeper? Because from this, it's a wonderful story. But at this point... There isn't much we can learn from this story. In every part of Torah, there's got to be a practical lesson. Right now, this seems more of a historical event, which is very interesting, and it's nice to know what the truth is. But is there something much deeper going on over here that gives us much practice? Everybody up up to speed mm-hmm. right yeah. now? This is mm-hmm. all simple stuff I just now. have a little question. Go ahead. How did the astrology, Ooh, they knew that... The, this is Moshe went to the or oh, what, she did it no. no, they could see the stars and the stars tell them that the Savior was put in the water Yeah. Okay. remember, the stroke is not 100% not perfect, that, not 100% it, they didn't tell him he was still alive that, uh, the daughter of Paolo took him away, that's they, don't know, they, they didn't have perfect vision it wasn't a flawless science, so to speak but they're pretty close they're pretty close, just a few little details, important details they couldn't they couldn't read perfectly. Okay. okay, now let's go back to the original decree and look very carefully at source number eleven and tell me if you notice anything a little odd. Let's let's take a look. Paro commands his people to say, call Habe Nayelod, any boy who's born, Tashli Cast him into it. And every girl let her live. Okay, what is the actual decree? Kill them. What? Yeah. To, kill, the to kill, kill them. To kill the boys, yeah. Yes. So the question is, so why don't we, why doesn't he say that? They're going to say, well, we just say to throw in. Well, let's go back to an earlier decree. Remember he told a Pua of a baby when the woman's ready to deliver and she's on the birthing chair, what do you do to the baby there? Let's take a look exactly what it says. He says to them, you see on the birthstool, you shall put him to death. So why didn't the decree say, we're going to take every boy and drown him in the river, kill him in the river? What do you mean cast him in the river? You got to say, well, look, that's just what they did. Well, you know, when it was time to deliver the babies, it was clear, Ten, put them to death even in modern Hebrew, what does it mean? Throwing. What would be the word for <laughs> drown? <laughs> La right. Which should be the more appropriate word here if that's what they planned on doing?
1: <laughs> Just to throw, <laughs>
0: throw them in the river? Yeah. Or to drown them? Because say, well, they like to talk euphemistically. They didn't do it when they are on the birthing table. You could add another word, you know. You drop the baby. <laughs> that would, if I guess, uh, if you drop the baby and fall, it'll probably die also. No, he says kill him. Well, if you want to kill him the second time, you just don't cast them in the water, but you kill him. No. The second one says on the birthing stool, the first person said, separated into the no. nile. Yeah, so I'm saying here, you see, it's kill them. Yeah. That was the earlier decree. He didn't mince his words. He said that decree was kill them. He was getting very bad. So, what should the decree be over here? Any baby who's born, drown him in the river. Don't cast him in the river. Kill him. It's being too nice. Uh, You're talking about power here. (laughs) Now, if the first time it didn't say kill them, okay, you could say. He likes to speak nicely. He doesn't care to speak nicely. He wants to kill them. Now, Agav, you're beginning to see what's going on over here. Clearly over here, is this not a prophecy for what life will be in the Gullis in, the, in, in Western society today? How many babies are murdered in Israel and everywhere else in the world? Thousands. Thousands would be lucky if it would be Thousands. In Israel alone it's millions, Mom? since World War II, millions, millions. So there's all kinds of paros in the world. How many Jewish babies have been killed and aborted in the world? So you know, it's, uh, and of course, you know, you'll make it look like, you know, not murder, Paro said, don't make it look like murder. You'll kill them, but don't make a look game of murder. So the world is doing the same thing. They're aborting babies. They're murdering babies. But we'll not call it murder. We're going to call it pro-choice, and we're taking care of the mother. Well, that's right. yeah. So So anyway, but that, I don't want to get into that. I just wanted to throw that <laughs> in. Bite. I'm trying to show you that everything you're learning about being in Gaulis and Mitzrayim, it's here all the time with us. Yeah. But I'm going to get to the area that I want to focus more over here. And what we're going to see in a moment is when this is not just by accident to cast the boy in the river, but what it really is telling us is let's understand what did the Egyptians really think about the Nile River. So we said it was their idol. And the question is, why did they idolize the Nile River? What was the reason to idolize? Like it was life giving. Life. It, was yeah. it, was it, sustenance. it was like it by what type of means? It flooded the land. Yes. So would would you say it's the natural means? Or agriculture, right? It it's, na- it's Nature, yeah. right? Nature. right? Yeah. Because it didn't get any rain in Egypt, right? So the plants and everything need water. So it was a natural thing. The Nile River. Naturally overflowed and provided water. Okay, so where, if you were an Egyptian, like in Soviet Russia, and they were teaching in school, who gives you life and sustenance? What is the answer? The state. The Nile. Well, not 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 there. What? No, no. What are you saying, Russia? Is that what you ask? I'm making a, yeah. a comparison. Who give The Nile River. Of course. No? Oh, I see. How do you live in in, in, in Egypt? For the What's your source of life? No. 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 What if the Nile River stopped producing water? No life. Stopped rising or whatever? Everybody would die. Right? Very interesting. So everybody understands in Egypt that our life depends on the rain that comes. And not the rain, the water that comes, because there is no rain. So that would be why they would deify the Nile River. Because if we treat the Nile River nice, it will treat us nice, right? And that's what Rashi says in Source 13, when Paro had the dream by the river. Why is it called the Yaor? He says... No other rivers are called Yor except the Nile because the entire land is covered with man-made canals and the Nile rises in their midst and waters them for it does not usually rain in Egypt as it does in other countries. Hmm. Well, so you could see why they would want to deify the Nile River. The Rambaman explains in the beginning the laws of idol worship. He said, How did people come to worship idols? Because they originally knew it was God, but then they saw that God had messengers like the sun and the moon and the, that, and they began to deify certain natural things that existed, and then they got God out of the picture, and then they looked at nature being the thing that takes care of them. Okay. So therefore, they all understood that it is a God, and it's a God that is a very natural type of God. Okay, so now what is the deeper understanding of the decree? If you read, remember, there's 70 levels of studying the Torah. No one's going to argue that Paro said, throw the baby boys into the river. That is definitely what happened. There's no argument about that. But there's many layers of this. And the, since the Torah wrote it in a specific way, so what is Paro also telling us about all exiles? Paro says, take every Jewish boy and cast him into the Nile. What does that mean? Throw him to the gods. You know, they, 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 Throw him to the gods. So what does that mean exactly? Well, be a little, just say it a little better. Tell me Think what exactly... Level. Okay. Okay. So let, let's try to understand... A fam- it's fam- a like famous Gemara... I'll help you out. It's a famous Gemara that says a father has to teach his son three things. One of them is a parnasa, Torah, get married, then the verse says and Yesh or some say to swim. So the question is, what does it mean to teach him how to swim? Yeah, <laughs> of all the things you have to teach him how to swim, so Pashup is because a lot of times you had to cross rivers. For Parnasa to go to Yeshiva, you got to learn how to swim. But it seems kind of odd because I'm sure there's a lot of other things he needed to know, to know. Also, you know, other practical things, about how to ride a camel. I guess you have to teach your kid how to ride a camel, no? To survive in the world. So, but what's the idea? The idea is how to swim. There's a lot of uh, metaphors of swimming. Now, swimming is you're trying to keep your head above water and yes. not drown. Swink or swim. Couldn't you use those terms in terms of business? How about in terms of keeping your religion? Sure, you're drowning in debt. Drowning in debt, or how dry, drowning in kfira, in in not believing in God. So the deeper understanding, notwithstanding the simple shot, but the Torah would have said, "Kill them in there." Then it would have been limiting exactly what we could explain. Since Torah says, "Cast them in," so what he's saying is, or at least beyond Egyptian, the Egyptian goal always was: throw the young men into this stream, this this Nile, this Conver- idol worship, and get them. them totally submerged into the society. And what becomes, if if. If everybody knows that everything happens naturally, so then what happens? And every Jewish boy knows you have to make a Parnassah naturally and it doesn't come from Hashem. You follow what the deeper understanding is over Throw And every girl, interesting, why does it say, isn't that obvious? If you're only throwing the boys in, why do you guys say anything about the girls? So does it mean the girls? The girls, tichayun, give them a life. Tell them to know what glamour is, beauty is, all the things that a girl, an Egyptian girl, would like. They don't have to drown in making Parnassa. The men in those days had to make the Parnassa. Where did the real Bitachon have to be in Parnassa? How do you make a living? How do you live? How do you do everything in life? So you throw them in the raging water, they'll get drowned, totally drowned in trying to survive. And they're going to be drowning in Teva because there's no God to help them out. And let the girls live it up with all kinds of uh, uh, delicacies that they want. As was well known, the Egyptian higher class people, what did the women do all day long? They didn't do anything. They had servants. (laughs) They just would go from one party to the next party. So teach the girls to be nice Japs and and to really enjoy their life. A great uh, recipe for total assimilation. Do you think we have to deal with that today? Sure, sure. Do you think the non-Jews really want to kill us necessarily? Maybe not. But, so if a non-Jew drowns in this, that's okay. They don't have a Torah. They do this. But this is exactly the issue that we have today. Okay. And to be able to cast them in as opposed to, since you're just coming from Israel, Parshas Eikev. Let's see how Eretz Yisrael is described as opposed to the land of Egypt. because <laughs> the land that you're going there to inherit. Lo carrots It's not like Egypt. Asher <laughs> we went from there. Asher where everything grows amazingly because you got the Nile River producing endless amounts of water. But rather, the land you're going to inherit, Eretz Harimu, because mountains, clefts, it's not that great in terms of water. Only can drink from the heavenly rain. Eretz Dorish also to me, a land that God seeks it out all the time. Hashem's eyes are over you. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year. What is Eretz Yisrael? Eretz Yisrael is a land that does not go according to nature. It only survives if God has it survive. No such thing as Teva in Eretz Yisrael. So now, if you can understand that the Jews, Yaakov, and all the Jews who lived in Eretz Yisrael, they never lived with Teva. We always lived with an understanding that everything is from Hashem. And if you live in Eretz Yisrael, there's no denying that if there's no rain, you're dead. There's no two ways about it. And therefore, your eyes are lifted up to Hashem. Hashem's Hashkocha is very pronounced over that area of the world. And therefore, it's clear the hashkach of Hashem is in every little thing. So, as the Medrash shrava continues and explains on that, one of the reasons Hashem's has made the world's sustenance dependent on rain, is that we will constantly be looking upwards. And that's why in the Wild West in America, in the 1800s, there were much more religious people because they knew their lives depended on rain as opposed to the people on the East Coast. You didn't need much rain. You were an industrial uh, world over there. Who needs rain? You just don't want the rain to destroy you. But out in the Wild West, you needed rain. So there were much more religious people. So Eretz Israel is like that. That than tells us, that the Eretz Yisrael is the first land that was created; everything was created afterwards. Eretz Yisrael, really, what happens is that Hashem gives it to rain on there, and it becomes a shliach to bring rain to the rest of the world. It keeps it, many, many chazal discuss it. Eretz Yisrael drinks rainwater, and the rest of the entire world drinks the remaining residue of the rainwater left in the clouds, etc., etc. Okay, fine. So now we see a clear difference between Egypt and Eretz Israel. Clear? Okay. The, the likelihood to assimilate is very strong in Egypt. While in Israel, it would not be that way. In Eretz Yisrael, when you have Tzadikim, like Avram, Yisrael, and Yaakov, and all these people, would never make the fatal mistake that in Source 17, not at this time at least, although Hashem says later on in history this can happen, where you'll say, My strength and the might of my hand that has accumulated this wealth for me. Don't do that. We must remember Hashem, your God, He's the one that gives you strength and makes you wealth in order to establish the covenant with you. Okay, so what do we have? We have Yaakov and his family were living in Eretz Israel, correct? And when they lived in Eretz Israel, was there any issues? Of their and Hashem and their betochet in Hashem? No. Was there any issues that everything is nature? No, nothing's no. nature. Crystal clear, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when do the problems really begin in Egypt? In the beginning of the parsha, we're told Yaakov comes down. When does the trouble begin, chronologically as written in the Torah? Right in the beginning of Sefer Shmoz. It says Yaakov came with his twelve children, Then what happens next? They all died out. And then what happened? Then the Jews multiplied and become very numerous in the land of Egypt. And then, Paro makes all the decrees. So now, how is Paro so sure that his decrees will work against the Jews? He says, drown them in Parnassa. Drown them in trying to make a living. Why does he think it will work now? Maybe on the they've already assimilated on the accord. Well, the text doesn't say that. The, the text doesn't say. Medrashim may, but the text doesn't. Have the from and from oh very good. Who only after the last, only after Levi dies. Let's take a look. It tells us how old Levi was in Sefer for Vaera. And the Gemara, Rashi asks, Why do you know how old Levi was when he died? So Rashi tells us to let us know how many were the years of bondage. For as long as one of the tribes was alive, there was no bondage. It says, Now Yosef died as well as his brothers, and afterwards a new king arose. Okay? And Yosef died as well as his brothers and all that <laughs> generation. As long as there was a, 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 a patriarch or a, a shavit, Levi, as long as somebody was alive, he said, guys, remember, we used to live in Israel. Let's not forget who we are. I lived there, said Levi. And I remember the times there was no rain and we into Hashem and Hashem gave us the rain and we were able to survive. Okay? And let's even say a little bit more than that. Since when was the Nile such a Wonderful um, source of irrigation. Wait a minute, wasn't there years of hunger as well? When Yaakov came to Ah! But Yaakov came to Paro and blessed that the Nile River would rise! So now you gotta be a moron to think that the Nile River is a god, especially if you're a Jew. And I know the Egyptians didn't popularize that. You know, there's there always concealing facts, the press has always concealed facts. It didn't just start with the recent liberals. This was going on. Paro says, what do you mean? uh, I'm the God. He didn't want too many people to know that Yaakov blessed, but every Jew knew what's going on. The the Nile is blessed because somebody, holy man from Israel, came and blessed the Nile River. Ah, but when they die, Yaakov is already dead for 70, 80 years. Now the last living person who lived in the land of Israel, basically there were a few, but maybe when they were one or two years old they came, but we're not, they're not going to be considered for this. But but the point is, now that there are no living survivors, it's like when the last Holocaust survivor dies, who's going to really believe that Germans could be so cruel? Oh, yeah, yeah. Time will pass. Germans are nice people. Just wait for the last, uh, he did a very good song of that, uh, uh, Rottenberg. if you get a chance the last survivor when the last survivor dies what's going to happen so it's the same thing almost here with Egypt when the last survivor of Israel died now we got a problem because now you don't have anybody who could stand up and say I was there and this is not true so now you see how this all fits into place what's happening is the Jewish people came from a place where they knew the Amos. The Amos was Eretz Yisrael. You could never fool them to think that the Nile is going to be a god. But when everybody dies, that's why the Torah tells us the beginning of Schmos again. Everybody dies. There's nobody from the original believers and therefore now we have the Jews who have tradition. We have tradition. People tell us this. But what happened to all the traditions when the Jews from Europe in the early, late 1800s and early 1900s, they had a tradition too. But then they came to America? And what happened to all the traditions? Out the window, why? Because it's not Hashem, it's nature. Parva's decree was in full force in America in the early 1900s. As a matter of fact, almost anywhere because it's just an old tradition. Even now. Right, even now, exactly. Okay, so now we understand exactly what the decree is on a more existential level. Not to deny that we've had anti-Semites who just want to kill us. And many a time, they would drown Jewish children throughout history. That's for sure true. And that's one element of shot that's arms so true. But that's not the real problem. Because you got to know, Nebuch, they kill Jewish children. It's a tragedy. But they die on Kiddush Hashem and a one-way ticket to Gan Eden. So there's a great silver lining in that. Again, we're not in favor of that. But it's still works out okay at the end so to speak but that was when a Jew assimilates when it's called Abbas <laughs> Techayun, they all let the, the girls they don't die they'll just become uh, you know uh, assimilated uh, Egyptian women what's worse what's worse to die Al Kiddush Hashem or to be, to be to assimilate unfortunately the Halacha says the assimilation is much worse because you destroy your Neshama So this becomes the issue. So this is the decree. This is the decree that's in force. How did the, now let's go back, how did the, when and how did the decree stop? When Moshe was put in there. When Moshe was put in there. Okay, so what does that mean exactly, that Moshe was put in there? Well, what do we know about Moshe? Moshe is mystically called the Raya, the Maimonusa. The Raya Mahemna. He is the, uh, the the shepherd of faith. What does it mean? That's, a, that's what he's famously known. He's the shepherd of faith. Because he is the one that is destined and has the capability of drawing the Amunah that Jews are supposed to have. Mm-hmm. And through his teaching and his modeling of behavior and everything, he's the one that illuminates to the Jewish people Amunah and Hashem to stand up against the decrees of power. And that's what Moshe's got to do. That's his job as the leader. Now it's interesting, even though, we'll just briefly touch, Shabbos says that the Jewish people are, Moshe thought they weren't going to believe him, right? But the Moshe says, God says God was very upset with him because they are, Maimini They're believers, the children of believers. And at the end of the day when Moshe came, They did believe him, even though he didn't think they were going to believe them. That's what it says, they did believe at the end. So, even though they are believers of believers, however, their belief was superficial. In other words, after about 70, 80 years without any uh, tribes there, and being in Egypt already 130 years... Yeah, they believed there's a God, they believed in were Jews, but it was more superficial. And they were drowning in Egyptian society. They were drowning in Egyptian society. So, but Moshe has the capability of taking the potential Emunah that we have and bringing it into reality. And this is how we're going to defeat the exile in Egypt. It's not just having us go out. That's not what about (laughs) It's about the decree is we don't believe in God anymore. It gets to the point you don't believe in God anymore. Who wants to go out of Egypt? Even with the suffering, many Jews, but until the plagues came, the Jews said, like, we're just going to stay here. We're not going to go out. So we need to build up the Amuna in HaKadosh Baruch Hu to say, no, things do not depend on nature. They depend on Hashem and we want to get out of this world and most wanted the one that has to teach us for this. Now this explains why another interesting story happens. Shh, shh, shh. Oh, And again, this is, uh, and this is what the Tanya mentions as well. Each and every soul of the Jewish people comprised comprise within something of the quality of our teacher Moshe, one of the seven shepherds, mm-hmm. who caused vitality and godliness to flow to the community of the souls of Israel, for which reason they are called shepherds. Our teacher Moshe, peace upon him, comprises aspects of them all, and he's called the faithful shepherd. That means he draws down the quality of das intellect, which means to take what you know and make it real, that they may know and be cognizant of Hashem, so that for them Hashem will be self-evidence and experienced by every Jew, each according to their level. This is what Moshe's goal was, and Moshe was always feeding that into us, even from the grave, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But now we have to understand another instance so what do you know most should we know as, 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 when we get to the burning bush story we're told all about him being the shepherd for yisro his father-in-law who was a priest and he's a shepherd so the question is why do we have to know all this so you could say well we need to know he's a shepherd because that was one of the tests. If you could be a good shepherd over sheep, you could be a good shepherd over the Jewish people. That all makes a lot of sense. But why do we got to mention Yisro and why do we have to mention he was a Kohen What does that matter? So the answer is because you could see that he is even making, you already see how Moshe, who's the shepherd of faith, is working on the faith of Yisro. And you could see that he's having a certain degree of success on a, on a heathen, he's able to impart some amun on him. So he's probably going to be a good candidate to get the Jews believing in Hashem. Remember, the ex- exodus has nothing to do with geographically removing the Jews from Egypt. That's worth nothing. If he can't get the Jews to believe in Hashem and to not believe in Teva, then you can just be any country in the world and you don't have any, no freedom at all. And the mystics call him what was there in the sheep, and I don't want to get very mystical over here, but there was all kinds of holy sparks. There were all kinds of human beings who did not succeed and they became Gilgals in the sheep. And he did all kinds, that's way out of our, our normal discussion. He was, he was drawing out sparks of holiness from the sheep. We'll just leave it at that. And drawing out sparks of holiness from, from Yisro. And therefore Moshe proved... That if he could do it with a non-Jewish cardinal, he could probably succeed with the Jewish people as well. So that's why we need to know all this little background to know exactly what has to be done is going to come from him. Now we begin to see the connection as we ask the original question: What does that have to do with the Egyptian idol? The decree, the decree of throwing the boys into the river, has something to do with the fact that Moshe, the redeemer. Is, is put in the water and is saved from the water and then the decree stops. In other words, as Moshe goes into the water, the power of the idol was stopped and the decree was stopped. And it all has to do with Moshe. Now it's very clear what the answer is. The decree really is to get the Jews to assimilate. The decree is for them to forget about Hashem. To think about everything as nature. Now, what is going to be the antidote to that? The antidote is Moshe. And when Moshe gets thrown into there, so to speak, when the new Redeemer is now part of reality, now the decree and the, the idol will be nullified as Yocheved, as, as, as the daughter of power nullified that. And Moshe will be able to prove that this idol is worthless. And how is he going to do this? With the templates. But it's not just the 10 plagues, It's Moshe's teaching and living and embracing this idea of having total amunah Hashem. Listen, you got to have a lot of amunah Hashem to walk right into the palace of Paro where the medrash says, you think it was easy to get to Paro's the throne room? There was all kinds of terrorizing animals and soldiers and this and that. You get killed up and chopped to bits way before you get to Paro. And Moshe just walks right in. Jews must look and say, wow, he's a real believer. I guess maybe what they're saying in Egypt isn't true. And this is what the whole issue was over here. The whole issue of Egypt was, do you believe in the God of nature, which the Jews were drowning in believing that that was so. And when Hashem has to take the Jews out, it's not just take them out of Egypt. He has to get them back to understand that no, they have Jews who came from Eretz Yisrael and you have to put Eretz Yisrael back onto the table. So now, so if you look carefully, you will see that there really were three stages in the descent of the Jewish people. We start with the Jews living in Israel. Okay, that's good. Good Amuna, good talking and Hashem, everything's good. Now they go down to Egypt, but the whole family's still there. So as much as they're seeing a world that doesn't believe in God, but the nucleus of the family still believes. But then when they all die and the nucleus is gone, comes another descent, and with that descent we get ourselves in major trouble. And what was the solution? The solution was Moshe Rabbeinu comes and gets us out of that. Okay, fine. So now we have a better understanding what the story was in Egypt. We have to understand that this is the very story that happens every day. Why? Well, what do we know? What mitzvah is there every day for us to discuss? There's a mitzvah to discuss the Itzias Mitzrayim every day. Let's look in Source 25. Okay, it's the Tanya, but other places. In every generation. And every single day. Every day, not just on Seder night. Every day you have to feel like you came out of Egypt. What's that mean? It's the exodus of the divine soul from the jail of the body. Which is the serpent skins. or To be included into the infinite light of Hashem. By day, be engaged in Torah mitzvahs. There's not just a mitzvah to say, mitzrayim. it's not just a mitzvah to remember going out of Egypt. Every day we have to go out of Egypt. Every day it's a question going out of Egypt. I go to Egypt every day. What? I go to Egypt every day. Ah, that's right. So now let's explain a little bit deeper what's exactly. So let's explain a little bit. Now we've got to go to Shulchan Aruch, simple halacha. Any Jewish man who follows simple halacha, this is where it becomes very relevant on a daily basis to understand how this story from 3,300 years ago, it's happening every day. You don't have to wait for Pesach. Every day you have to understand exactly what we're supposed to be doing. So let's take a look. We start with this is the end of Hasechus Brachas. Rav Levi says... What's the first thing a Jewish man does? He goes to shul. Now, then he says, When you leave the shul, you go to the house of learning, and now you engage in studying Torah, you merit to receive the face of God, so to speak, and they bring a Pesach for that. Okay, so... What does that mean exactly? And then what happens after that? Then you leave the base on Madras, and then what do you do? You go to work. to work. So let's take a look. Famous Gemara and Brachas, contradictory p'sokim. Vosafter Genecha says in the Shema, you will gather your grain, which seems to say it's supposed to work. There's another Pasik in Savior Yeshua, the Torah will never leave your lips. <coughs> So what is it? Torah never leaves your lips. You're not going to work. Mm-hmm. That's what you're if you're making. going to work, Torah is leaving your lips. So, one interpretation of Yishmael is, you know what you do? Mm-hmm. Conduct yourself with the way of the world. You set aside time for Torah, but you also go to work. And you do both. Mm-hmm. There's another opinion of Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, but that is for the most uh, exalted of souls who learn Torah all day without stopping. But the proper way for 90% uh, plus of Jews is to blend your Torah with Derech Eretz. So now let's try to understand exactly what's going on every day. Now, this is what we're supposed to be doing. A man's supposed to go to, first thing, go to Davin, mm-hmm. Second thing, In the days of the Talmud, there was one building to daven and one building to learn. Mm -hmm. So you go from davening to learning to work. Okay, sometimes doesn't quite work out. You work before, learn before you daven, whatever. But an ideal situation is daven, learn, work. Now, what are those three stages of the day paralleling? What? Those three levels of the Jews. Ah, very good. We had the Jews living in Israel, the Jews living in Egypt, in the yeshiva, in the city of Goshen, studying Torah in the yeshiva of Yehuda, and then you have the Jews leaving Goshen and going right into Egypt. So let's see how the Rebbe explains over this. He says like this: We start with davening. So when you start to daven, you daven properly with kavanah. what do you experience? If you're davening really properly, you, Hashem, different Hashem's different. presence is real, revealed to your soul. Which we would say, like not that you physically see Hashem, but you see Hashem in your life, so to speak. You make a lot of preparations through the Davning, at the Zimra. You're discarding all the garbage, all the other things you're thinking about. You're forgetting about them. You come to the Shema. Very interesting. Shema. Look at the prophet Isaiah. It says, S'u marom Lift your eyes, heavenly word. What's the first three letters of each word? Seu, Marom, Enechem, shema. shema. Ureu, Mibara, Ela. And see who created everything. So what is really Shema all about? When you really are saying Shema with Kavonah, what are you really saying? You are acknowledge there is no other reality but Hashem. It's not that there's one God. It means the whole reality is Hashem to the point of R'iya, so to speak, existential sight. Okay? And that's just like being in Eretz Yisrael where you sense Hashem is the one who's taking care of your life. And then you get to the Amida. And the Amida is total nullification before Hashem to the point, you know how nullified you are? Look at the first six words you say. Oh, I skipped something. over. Oh, that's okay. Uh, we can skip that. He uh, says, Hashem <laughs> Now why in the world are you saying that? There's only one answer. Without you, Hashem, I can do nothing. Is this poetry or is this real? It's real. Both. It, well, but, it, it, but it's real. It real. Without you, I cannot talk. That's total sublim- <laughs> sublimation before Hashem. That's totally understanding that Hashem is the only reality. Or as the Rebbe says... My request, my mouth shall declare praise. that our prayer should be as if we are repeating after the prayer of Hashem. Therefore, prayer is done silently, representing self-nullification. This is the meaning of my mouth shall declare, Yagid, which signifies drawing down the words. It's so that we repeat the words in our prayers that our request shall be fulfilled. You're totally understanding that Hashem is completely involved. There's a total bonding and dvekas with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You're reaching a very high level. This is mamish, like being in Eretz Yisrael when the Shekhinah was there. Now, it's nice to be in Israel now. It's wonderful, but it isn't what it was when we had a Beis HaMikdash. Let's put it that way. That was crystal clear. There was no doubt in your mind. And then, and when you dive in, you're supposed to feel like you're facing the Katshe Kadashim. And you mamish feel that you're totally... Absorbed in a cottage sparkles reality. You can't be fooled at enough. This is all assuming you're dominating with some kind of cavana. If you're dominating in an express minion, we're just flipping pages and finishing words, well, you've missed the whole point. But if you're really dominating properly, you're leaving in an exalted state that you mamish feel. You're totally incorporated Shem. Okay, now comes the first descent. Which is not a bad descent, because the Shukunark requires you to do it. Now, the shul, it, again, if you have a shul that is conducive to that reality, right? So you really feel one with a Baruch Now, you're going to take a slight descent. You're going to go into the study hall where now you, you deal with Hashem based on what? L'ita. Your understanding of things. With your seichu, with your das, which is still beautiful thing to do but compared to where you were at at the Amida when you were totally nothing before Hashem so it, it was called Beetle Gomor you totally don't exist which is the total reality we're not meant to live that way forever we're meant to go back and study Torah that now and I have what to contribute with the understanding of Torah and of course I'm studying Torah the way Hashem wants to understand it but I'm already a little bit of a somebody over there. So, relative to davening, it's a descent. But it's one that God sanctions. He says, I want you to do that. I don't want you to live up in the heavens all day long. You're not supposed to live all day long up there. You got to start coming down. So, come down where? Come down and study some Torah. Try to understand reality based on your understanding. So, that's leaving Israel, going to Goshen in the yeshiva with Yehuda. And studying Torah in Mitzrayim already. Now, you can't say you're totally nullified to Hashem in Mitzrayim. You know, in Israel you were totally nullified. Now we got to use our brains to understand what Hashem wants from us and this and that. So it was a descent, but still good. It's what Hashem wanted. Remember, what does it say in that Gora? We went down to Egypt in that Gora. We had to go. So Hashem tells us what we have to do. Hashem says you got to start by davening. Be an Eretz Yisroh. Lamish. Kach and Okay, but that's not the final goal. The final goal is you got to go, especially if you're in the Gullis, you got to go now study Torah. That's a a relative descent. But then you got to go into Egypt. Now you got to go downtown. Deal with all the Goyim. Deal with all the crazy things that are going on in this world where honesty is not the best policy. People are trying to destroy everybody, etc., etc. We will not go into the details of all the corruption that goes on in the outside world. There are nice people too, but, uh, the, but the truth of the matter is, how many people in the non-Jewish world that you deal with believe that God's running the show? Okay, how many believe it's all nature? And nature has many meanings. It means how well you play the game, how well you um, manage deals how well you have foresight to figure out what the trends are and all these different things where Hashem really is not part of the world at all. So what keeps you going? Ah, You see, you got have a big problem. You're going to go down to Egypt without any preparation at all, right? So what has to happen? We have to understand that we have to bring Moshe Rabbeinu with us. We have to bring Amuna with us. Moshe Rabbeinu and Amuna. Amunah is when what? When the outside world screams the opposite but you've got enough inside of you to hold on to what you have and not be fooled. And that's the avoda of going to work. That's the avoda of going to Mitzrayim. Okay? And therefore, you have to realize that now uh, it's, it's difficult and there's two points you've got to remember because a lot of people gonna say, well, we're in Gullus. We're here. We're there. It's it's not the same as if we'd be in Eretz Yisro with a base hamigdash and all these things. But you got to understand two things: don't blame yourself. Remember, onus al hadibur. We had to go down to Egypt because we were forced to. There's a curse of Arishon. We got to go to work because we got to. Hashem wants us to bring out the reality of Hashem even in a world that says the opposite. So it's not your choice. In other words, the fact that you go to work and make a parnasa. Don't feel bad about it. Don't feel I'm a rotten guy. No, that's exactly what Hashem wants you to do. Hashem wants you, but first, buddy, you better daven first. You better learn Torah first. And now you hang on to Moshe Rabbeinu and what Moshe Rabbeinu has been giving you. And now not to worry about this descent because even though you're not really davening right now and you're not really learning, but we all have Moshe we can draw on Moshe, we draw on what our lives were all about. And that's why we have to every day feel like we went out of Egypt. Every day you read the Shema and say, I am Hashem who took you out of Egypt, took out of Egypt to be able to do the mitzvahs and everything. So this is exactly the decree of Paro is a decree that's every day. And the three steps that happened over a long period of history happens every day. And I think of a man or a woman, the same thing. Now, of course, women aren't as obliged to daven as much as men and all those other things, but you're you're a team, you're a unit. Husband and wife is a unit. And therefore, with all the other expectations of a unit. And if you start your day realizing this is the battle that you're going into, then the things you wanna do on your spare time, you wanna always keep back, oh, how am I gonna bring my show along with me? (laughs) i have to have little reminders of Moshe Rabbeinu. And what's the key of Moshe Rabbeinu is das. Das is to live in the reality that your information tells you. And that's the challenge that we have today. And that's what we're promised. And everybody can leave Mitzrayim. You can get out of the decree and you can succeed. And just like it says, and the more they hit the Jews, the more we grew so you got to realize that although Gaulus is not uh, the permanent end, but obviously there's a lot to be gained when you're in Gaulus. Okay, so that I think uh, I think that answers all our questions, and I understand why the e- Egyptian god. So every day we're going into the Nile River, mm-hmm. but but when Moshe gets thrown into the Nile River, that defeat he overwhelms the power of the Nile River, and if we take Moshe Rabbeinu with us into the Nile River, that will nullify that decree. And the decree is gone. The decree of drowning in the river. How many yidden drown in their look looking for it? Drown in every single thing. We have to remember what's the reality of what Hashem wants. And that is when you leave Egypt. When you are tested in business and it's very easy to cheat. Or you're tested in Gashmias and it's easy to go overboard. And you say, no, I don't need this. Then you should know you just left Egypt. But if you go with the flow, then you would want to, today, today, you either drown in the Nile today, or you get out of Egypt today. Tomorrow you could try again. Every day. Every day. So life should not be boring. Every day, it's like, you know, just try. Try to drive one day without looking at the road. I don't know how many more days you'll have driving. Yeah, exactly. So I'm saying, if you, if you don't look, if you don't look at what, where you go, you're going into the Nile River. You're going into a world that's telling there's no gods. You guys, oh, if, you, if you don't daven and you don't learn, you're dead. There's nothing to talk about. It's Even true. if you daven and learn, it's going to be a challenge. But at least you're, you're fighting and you at least know the direction that you're fighting. Okay, so now that we're talking about Eretz Yisrael, we're talking about miracles. So we got time for... Uh, but
1: how about Bas What about Bas
0: Who made her to convert? She decided on her own. She decided on her own. Before she got the Moshe, yes, she decided on her own. Okay, so let's uh, let's tell a very interesting story about Eretz Yisrael. (laughs) So uh, you all know about the Baba Sali. He had a son, Reb Baba Meir Abu Mm Hatzera, who lived in the 1900s till about 1980, something like that. And there were many Jews from Morocco after 1948, who wanted to make Aliyah. And whenever they would, any Jew would want to leave, it was not an easy uh, adventure in those days. And Yidin would go to this uh, the Baba Mayor, and they would cry and say, we're going to go, it's going to be hard, and he'd try to strengthen them. Anyway, there was this one particular Jew who, uh, who goes to the Baba Mayor, and uh, he's crying also. And this is going to be very hard. He's going to go with his family. But this Jew was crying much more than anybody else. And Mamash, he's sobbing. He's crying. And he tells the Baba Mayor, he says, You've known me for a long time, and you you know I'm not an educated person. I can't even reckon. He was very religious. A lot of the Sephardim were very religious, but very uneducated. <laughs> He was particularly... I can't even recognize one Hebrew letter of the Aleph base. I haven't read one book in my whole life. I've managed until now to support myself by doing dealings with the Goyim. You know, in Morocco, you didn't have to know how to read so much. But I'm going to go to Israel. It's a civilized place. What future do I have for me? The population of Eretz Israel is filled with teachers and scholars who aren't going to look at a boor like me. I'm so ignorant. If you gave me the, the front page of a book, a Hebrew book, I wouldn't know where the first page is or the last. I wouldn't know the difference between them. I don't even know what's up. I'm really. So only like someone like the Baba Mayor could turn to him and say, he says, listen to me. Your innocence and ignorance is precisely what will help you manage in Eretz Yisroh. The fact that you cannot read and cannot write will provide you with a livelihood for your entire life. Wow. Okay? I could never say such a thing. (laughs) I don't know if any of us could say so. But the Baba mayor could do this. So the guy listens, his eyes light up. (laughs) He's starting to smile. He's taking the boat, the final trip. He's going to go to Eretz Yisrael. And everybody sees he's happy. Everybody else is nervous and he's happy. So what do you have? About? I got the brach of the Baba Mayor in my knapsack. He said I'm going to provide a living with me for the rest of my life and precisely my ignorance and my and, and, and those things uh, uh, is going to make it that I am going to survive. Okay? He comes here to Stroll. He settles in Kvar Ata. Okay, between Haifa and Akko. His sons were very smart in religious and secular studies. They succeeded one of they, one One of them got a job, very important job, with the Israeli army in the weapons development network. Okay, he got involved with missile engineers and everything. And the father is unemployed. the son talks to the guys in charge and says maybe you could find a job for my dad so he says okay but you know every day we have all kinds of secret missile plans are sketched at the end of the day we don't use most of them but uh, we have to destroy most of them and they're all sitting in engineers covers we have to be careful we don't have the wrong people to get it so, we need somebody that we could trust like says, dad. "Oh, <laughs> my father, you can trust <laughs> so he goes in, he goes in he uh he they they said he said oh, you're this guy, yeah he says, okay, just wait Waits and waits and waits waits, waits hours and hours and hours he 's ready to get up and leave. Then they call him in and they interview him. And they say you got the job. He says, "How did I get the job? I don't know how to read. I don't know how to write." He says, "You know what? That's what we need. <laughs> because anyone else, they're gonna. We need people to shred all the papers. They're gonna take the papers. Anybody who can read is gonna. You're gonna look at it. You have. You can't not see it. It's gonna say X Y Z the missile and this and that." And and then and then we have to get a guy who's honest that he's not going to tell. Well, you know, well, you know what? We made you wait five six hours. We have a hidden camera watching you. There were magazines all over, all kinds of interesting. Any type of magazine was there, and we looked at you. You picked it up, put it down, picked it up, flipped through the pictures, and put it down. There was a newspaper there. We We know you can't read, and your son says that you're honest. Mm-hmm. So guess what? It's precisely your sincerity and your uh, ignorance is what got you the job. (laughs) So he gets this job for 30 years. For 30 years, he's got a good parnasa, unbelievable. 30 years. And then it's time for retirement. So he's forced to retirement because of his age. He got a good pension, a good severance package. But he's upset. He goes to the Baba Mayor's son now, the Rabbi David Chaya Bukhatserah, Chief Rabbi of Nariah. He says, if your father promised me a living for my entire life, but they terminated my job, go down for me. (laughs) In less than a week, the managers of the Institute contact him and said, maybe you could come back to work because we haven't found anyone qualified to take your place. <laughs> why, wow. why, oh, a consultant? So <laughs> what do you see? What do you see in Eretz Yisrael? It's all what? <laughs> not Teva. <laughs> it's not Teva. And therefore, now we have difficult economic times. This is the new Paro. <laughs> The interest rates are through the roof. The uh, inflation is through the roofs. How are young families who are now renewing their mortgages from one and a half percent to six percent, how are they going to live? <laughs> and now there's going to be all kinds of horrors. Maybe we have to compromise on our Yiddishkeit. <coughs> you have to know it's precisely these challenges. So, and therefore, you can, you know, one last story. They went to the Tzemach Tzedek. Someone to the Tzemach Tzedek and said, "Should I, I need a bracha for aliyah. And he said, Don't go. He says, Tase khan Eretz Yisrael. He says, Tavi et Eretz Haktosha khan. Meaning to say, Not every can go to Eretz Yisrael. But Eretz Yisrael is not a geographic place. But it's where the Shefa comes from. So therefore, we know eventually Eretz Yisrael is going to take over the whole world. So even if you can't go to Eretz Yisrael, but you could still live in Eretz Yisrael here. As long as you're connected to that source and that's where you want to be and you're thinking about it, you're supporting all that. So therefore, always Eretz Yisrael is above nature and you have to bring it with you into the ghost. Okay. Thank you all for listening.